Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Are you ever tempted by the latest and greatest, newest and shiniest technology? What if that technology is a hypersonic weapon? That's our topic today. And stick around after the interview. Katie Love is back with part three of our four-part series on how rigorous science and detective work can provide grounds to make polluters pay. For many of our leaders in Washington, the lure of having the best, newest, shiniest weapon is hard to resist, as is the temptation not to get left behind by what everyone else is working on. It's like a super risky, life-threatening version of wanting the latest smartphone, even though you just got a new phone. This is how arms races escalate. We saw it during the space race and during the Cold War. And now we're seeing it as the U.S., Russia, and China pursue hypersonic weapons that are more hype than helpful. Today's guest is here to explain what this technology actually does and how it affects our vulnerability to nuclear attack. We're talking to Dr. Cameron Tracy, a Kendall Fellow here at the Union of Concerned Scientists and an expert on nuclear arms control, about some common misconceptions, like how hypersonic weapons are touted as the shiny new technology when they're actually old news. We discuss where these misconceptions come from, how they make it hard for decision-makers to develop effective global security policies, and what UCS is doing to start more technically informed discussions, so that the decisions are made based on independent, unbiased information. Cue the rocket scientist. Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I, I want to start by defining hypersonic weapons. Can you give me a basic definition? Yeah, so a one-sentence definition for a hypersonic weapon is a missile that flies five times faster than the speed of sound or more through Earth's atmosphere. Now, the second part of that is really important. Many people think hypersonic, they just think fast. It's a fast missile. And that's not really the case. Hypersonic is actually fairly poor nomenclature here because it doesn't distinguish hypersonic weapons from other existing types of missiles. In fact, the first modern missile, the German V-2, which was developed in the 1940s, flew at just below five times the speed of sound, just below that cutoff for what defines a hypersonic velocity. So really what distinguishes a hypersonic missile is that rather than flying high into outer space before dropping back down to Earth, it glides at a fairly low altitude through the atmosphere. A good way to understand this is by a process of analogy. Uh, an existing ballistic missile, so an older missile technology, we might think of as being akin to uh, throwing a baseball. So it's initially accelerated by your arm, and then once you let go of the baseball, it flies along a predetermined path to wherever it's going to go. Once you let go of it, you really don't have any control over it. It's just flying like a ballistic missile would. And we all know that if you want to throw a baseball a long distance, you have to throw it pretty high up. On the other hand, a hypersonic weapon we might think of as like a paper airplane. So it's accelerated by your arm in the same way. But once you let go of it, it's not just flying along this arcing path. It actually glides. So it doesn't have to go as high up. It can just kind of fly along the ground for a long distance. And you might imagine that if you could somehow 
move the wings a little bit as it flew, it could glide around, it could turn, it could go to a different place than where it was initially heading when you let go of it. Talk to me a little bit about the speed. Yeah, so uh, five times the speed of sound, the cutoff for the hypersonic velocity regime means a few kilometers per second, not per hour, per second. Uh, so this is, for example, uh, at least five times faster than the fastest currently existing fighter jet. So really, the only thing, the only man-made things that travel this quickly are missiles, uh, space shuttles, that sort of thing. Where have they tested them? Yeah, so the U.S. has conducted several test flights uh, between, mostly between Southern California and the Marshall Islands. There was one attempted test between Alaska and the Marshall Islands. Uh, that one failed. In fact, there's been a, a fairly mixed record. About half of the tests so far haven't made it to their destination uh, as intended, but the other half have. So distances of several thousand kilometers were used in these test flights. So what kind of weapons are on these missiles? It depends on the country developing them. Uh, so most of these systems are what we would call dual use, meaning they could be conventional explosives or they could be nuclear warheads. So it's generally just a matter of the weight that the vehicle can carry and the space uh, available inside it. So in most of the systems currently under development, they can carry a great deal of weight. Uh, so in U.S. tests, for example, some of these have carried several hundred kilograms of ballast. This is essentially extra material that you put in to balance it, to uh, simulate the mass of the warhead that it might carry in an actual use case. And so that's a few hundred kilograms. Uh, modern nuclear warheads, many of them weigh, again, a few hundred kilograms. And there's sufficient space within these missiles to carry those sorts of warheads uh, if it were desired. What are the rules in the U.S. governing whether we can put nuclear weapons on these missiles? In the U.S., it's simply a matter of policy. Current U.S. policy is that these will carry only conventional explosives. They won't be used for nuclear weapons. But again, that's not a technical constraint in any way. So... If in the future the U.S. developed these systems and was interested in using them for delivering nuclear warheads, that's probably something that would be a fairly simple matter of achieving. And are hypersonic weapons a new technology? Yeah, it's really interesting. They're often seen as the hot new thing in missile technology, but interestingly, the idea is actually pretty old. So the modern rocket was developed in the 1920s. And shortly after that, in the 1930s, uh, two German engineers, a uh, husband and wife couple, Sanger and Brett, started proposing putting a glide vehicle, what we would now call a hypersonic glider, on the front of one of these rockets. So that rocket could accelerate it to hypersonic velocities. And then just like the weapons currently under development, it could glide through the atmosphere. The first modern ballistic missile, uh, so the first use of a rocket to deliver an explosive warhead, was in the 1940s, as I mentioned earlier, with this German V-2 missile. And by the 1950s, the U.S. was testing the X-15. So this was a crewed rocket-powered aircraft, essentially a missile, but there was a person in it, that traveled at hypersonic velocities through the atmosphere. So that's what we might call the first uh, operating hypersonic vehicle. They weren't widely considered for weapons use until fairly recently. And in fact, historically, uh, they've been seen as having many disadvantages compared to 
for example, ballistic missiles, which were developed. And that's because hypersonic weapons, since they glide through the atmosphere rather than flying through outer space for most of flight like a ballistic missile does, are subject to the effects of drag. So if you think of sticking your hand out the window of your car, you can really feel the air pushing back on your hand, right? That's going to slow anything that's gliding through the atmosphere. So if you want your missile to get from point A to point B quickly, you might not want it to be within the atmosphere. You might rather have it in outer space where you're free from that effect of drag, which is how ballistic missiles work. Well, that makes me think of the recent blog posts that you've written where you kind of debunk some of the technical claims that were being made about hypersonic weapons. Can you walk me through uh, a few of those, those drawbacks? Yeah, so there are myriad claims about the supposed advantages of hypersonic weapons compared to established missile technologies, those that are currently used. Uh, just to go through a few of those, the most common is that hypersonic weapons are exceptionally fast. Now, this claim isn't really true. Uh, in fact, as I mentioned before, they're fired on the same rockets as existing missiles. So many of the hypersonic weapons tested to date in the U.S., for example, are initially launched on rockets that are repurposed from old Peacekeeper intercontinental ballistic missiles. So they reach the same initial speeds because it's accelerated on the same rocket. Now, after that, hypersonics do fly a more direct path to their target. They don't have to go far into outer space before dropping back to Earth. But that said, there's also this effect of drag that is unique to hypersonic flight. Long-term flight through the atmosphere means you're experiencing that drag for a long period of time. Uh, so one thing we've been doing is computational modeling to look at how those two factors, the direct flight path but the effects of drag, balance out to determine the delivery time, how long it takes for a hypersonic weapon to go from point A to point B compared to existing ballistic missiles. And what we find is that ballistic missiles, if fired on a specific trajectory optimized to minimize that delivery time, can reach targets at intercontinental distances faster than a hypersonic weapon could because hypersonic weapons are slowed by the effects of atmospheric drag for such a large portion of their flight. Uh, a second common claim is that hypersonic weapons are invisible or that they can't be seen by existing early warning systems meant to warn of an incoming missile attack. So this has a grain of truth to it. Radar systems based on the ground do have a hard time seeing hypersonic missiles because hypersonic missiles fly low to the ground, meaning that they don't rise above the horizon until they're within a few hundred kilometers of that radar. That said, Countries with advanced early warning systems like the United States and Russia, for example, don't rely entirely on ground-based radar. Uh, the U.S. and Russia both have space-based early warning systems. Those are satellites with infrared sensors watching the surface of the Earth. China is developing such a system as well right now. Uh, these look for infrared light given off by hot objects. And in fact, when flying through the atmosphere, hypersonic weapons get extremely hot. They tend to glow, giving off a lot of infrared light. So modeling we've been doing indicates that actually this emission of infrared light from these very hot gliders would be sufficient for existing space-based early warning systems to see them for most of their flight. Uh, finally, there's this common claim that 
hypersonic weapons are immune to existing defenses, that they can't be stopped. So again, uh, there's a grain of truth to this. Hypersonic weapons likely fly under the uh, area in which existing ballistic, uh, existing anti-ballistic missile systems can intercept ballistic missiles. But in a way, that's of course the case because a system designed to intercept a ballistic missile is going to fare poorly against a non-ballistic missile. Uh, different systems developed to counter hypersonic weapons specifically might do better at that. Uh, also, at the end of flight, because of the effects of drag, hypersonic weapons tend to be traveling more slowly than existing ballistic missiles, so they could be more vulnerable to missile defenses there. But overall, this is largely irrelevant because existing anti-missile defenses fare pretty poorly against existing ballistic missiles fired by advanced, uh, technologically advanced nations. It's really hard to knock a ballistic missile out of the air. So even if a hypersonic weapon were much more difficult to knock out of the air, that might not change anything. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. Our next podcast drops on Election Day. Here at Podcast Central, we're hoping that everyone gets out to vote, either by mail or safely in person. I've got two resources for you. Check out sciencerising.org for information on every possible question you might have. You can also check out our two-part podcast series, episodes 88 and 89, on voting during a pandemic. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. Cameron, these weapons aren't sounding so hot anymore. They're not as fast because of the drag. They're not really invisible. They get hot and they glow, so you can maybe see them. What what um what is the motivation for developing them and like what are we trying to solve? So interestingly, there are three countries that are most ardently pursuing these weapons right now, the United States, Russia, and China. And each has its own very distinct motivation for developing these weapons in the first place. So in the US, they were initially part of what was called the Conventional Prompt Global Strike Program. This was something started around the early 2000s. And the idea was that the US wanted a non-nuclear weapon that it could use anywhere on Earth to target uh, non-state actors, terrorist groups, this sort of thing. And hypersonic gliders were attractive for that purpose because when one is coming in, it doesn't look like a ballistic missile at all. It doesn't look like the missiles that are currently used to carry nuclear weapons. And so there's less of a chance of a nation targeted or nearby the targeted area thinking that this is a nuclear strike against them. Instead, they would understand, oh, that's a different conventionally armed missile. 
So it would be less likely to accidentally result in nuclear retaliation. Russia had an entirely different purpose. Their hypersonic weapons are actually nuclear armed. In 2002, the U.S. withdrew from a treaty with Russia, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, which limited missile defenses that each country could deploy. Uh, Russia wasn't a fan of this, so they were worried that the U.S. might deploy missile defenses that could stop incoming Russian nuclear-armed missiles. As a result, they developed their hypersonic weapons to circumvent any potential missile defense that the U.S. deployed. And so theirs are explicitly nuclear-armed, whereas the U.S. weapons are explicitly conventionally armed. Uh, then there's China, where the motivation is much more opaque. They seem to be looking at both conventional and nuclear use cases. Uh, one possible motivation there is simple technological prestige. So a lot of the Chinese work in this area is just published in the open academic literature. And what all of this raises is an interesting question of whether one weapon can really do all of these things. Can it fulfill all of these different purposes? And what that might point to is that this is more of an arms racing dynamic than anything else. It might not matter exactly what the weapon does, but all the great powers have to have it because the other great powers are pursuing it and they don't want to be left behind. There are also financial incentives. Uh, in the U.S. right now, hypersonic weapons development comprises about 3% of all current U.S. defense research and development spending. So there are these incentives to keep that funding flowing. It seems like human nature can easily get us into an arms race if the country over there is developing something that leaves me vulnerable and so I need to develop something as strong or stronger. How do I answer that question when someone says to me, but we have to have this weapon because they have it? When talking about the need to develop a new weapon, Oftentimes, people will look at the purported advantages of that weapon and not see any downside with that. So they would say the worst case scenario is, okay, you waste some money and you have a weapon that doesn't really do what it was supposed to do, but there's no net negative effect. Uh, but actually, there is. So arms racing in and of itself is inherently danger dangerous. Uh, it's been empirically shown that arms races increase the likelihood of conflict, for example between the countries that are arms racing. So that becomes really dangerous when this is a nuclear or nuclear capable system, because so much of the global architecture of nuclear security relies on stability, the ideas of mutually assured destruction and so on, mutual vulnerability. Uh, so anything that upsets that stability is a huge threat because we start bringing in even existing nuclear systems that might not really have anything to do with a hypersonic weapon. But if all of a sudden everyone is concerned about whether their missile defenses might work, whether they need this new weapon to counter weapons being developed by other countries, then the overall global nuclear risk increases. Uh, there are also issues associated simply with those costs. So every billion dollars per year that is spent on developing hypersonic weapons isn't spent on much needed things like pandemic response capabilities, which is also a very important part of U.S. security. Are there any arms control agreements that prevent the U.S. or others from using hypersonic weapons? There aren't right now, but there could be and should be. With New START uh, soon up for renewal, 
or renegotiation or expiry, hopefully renewal, uh, this might be a good opportunity to make sure that the newest class of missile, hypersonic missiles, are clearly and explicitly integrated into that agreement and subject to those same limitations based on the fact that they are capable of carrying nuclear weapons between the United States and Russia. And this new START agreement forms the bedrock of U.S.-Russian nuclear arms control. What do you see as um, the path that the U.S. should take? So the U.S. would be wise to maybe take a step back and think about why the U.S. is developing these weapons and whether they actually fill any particular role that needs to be filled. Uh, to date, there hasn't really been a clear mission for these weapons articulated. So early on, there was this conventional prompt global strike idea. But since the 2000s, the focus has shifted less to use against terrorists and non-state actors. And currently, there isn't really a clear rationale for what these weapons are meant to do. That said, they are clearly doing something. They're driving an arms race between the United States, Russia, and China. Uh, they're costing billions of dollars per year for the U.S. that could go to other things that actually enhance the security of the U.S. populace. So what there's really a need for here is better technical assessment to look at, well, what role could these weapons actually play? What do they actually do compared to technologies that already exist and which we've already uh, invested a great deal of money and time into? So there, there's a key role for legislative oversight. It's the job of Congress to make sure that funding uh, being directed to these weapons is directed efficiently and effectively towards things that make Americans or the world safer. Uh, so that's a place where independent experts like at UCS can really help because there's this need for information rooted not in these overblown claims of the revolutionary nature of these weapons, but in rigorous scientific analysis of how they would actually perform once developed. Well, Cameron, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast. Oh, great. Thanks so much for having me. Now we're returning to our nifty four-part series on how rigorous science and a little detective work can provide evidence to make polluters pay. This is part three. If you missed the first two, you should definitely go back to episodes 93 and 94 and listen. So far, Katie's laid the groundwork of how it's illegal for companies to lie about the harm their products cause, and how we know fossil fuel companies have done just that. That is, lied to us for decades about climate change, which they knew perfectly well was real. Katie Love is back for part three, and she's about to bring the science. Thanks, Colleen. If you listened to part one of this series, you might remember I compared the actions of big tobacco companies with those of big oil. Faced with scientific evidence that their products were harmful, they tried to bury the science and lie about it. For tobacco companies, it was hard to hide the causal link between smoking cigarettes and developing lung cancer and other deadly illnesses. Study after study of smokers proved that using tobacco greatly increases the risks for disease and disability. For fossil fuel companies, it's been a little easier to go unnoticed. Our planet is large with different climates and there are many sources of carbon emissions, including natural ones. But science is awesome. And scientists, including some of my colleagues at UCS, have now figured out how much the fossil fuel industry has contributed to certain climate change impacts. 
Today, it's possible to trace temperature increases, sea level rise, and ocean acidification to specific fossil fuel companies. For the full breakdown of this research, you're welcome to check out the scientific journals Climatic Change and Environmental Research Letters. I'll provide more of an overview than a detailed explanation. In 2014, a scientist named Rick Heady published peer-reviewed research quantifying carbon dioxide and methane emissions from burning the products of the 90 largest carbon producers. Carbon producers can be publicly traded gas and oil companies like ExxonMobil or Chevron, state-owned monopolies like Gazprom in Russia, or cement companies, which are big sources of heat-trapping emissions. Since Heedy published his research, UCS and other scientists have incorporated that data into simple climate models to determine the effects of those emissions, tying them to those carbon producers. And here's what they've been able to calculate. Emissions traced to the largest 88 carbon producers contributed around 60% of the increase in atmospheric CO2, about half of the rise in average global temperatures, and about a third of global sea level rise between 1880 and 2015. Over the same time frame, more than half the increase in the acidity of the world's oceans is tied to emissions from these 88 producers. In between 1965 and 2015, years during which fossil fuel companies knew their products were causing global warming, just 48 investor-owned companies contributed around 16% of global average temperature increase and about 12% of sea level rise. I probably don't need to tell you why global temperature increases, aka warming, and sea level rise are bad. Ocean acidification isn't discussed as much when we talk about climate change, but it's also bad news and a serious threat to global food chains as marine life dies off in acidic waters. Also bad news are the extreme events that keep happening with more frequency as climate change intensifies, like wildfires, hurricanes, droughts, and heat waves. Scientists have previously warned that we can't tie climate change to such events, but like I said, science is awesome, and we now can prove that climate change makes such events more likely. For example, scientists have estimated that of the record rainfall from Hurricane Harvey in 2017 that cost around $90 billion in damage to Texas homes and businesses, about 30 to $67 billion of that is attributable to human influence on climate change. So when these consequences of climate change affect where we live, causing flooding, extreme heat, hurting animal and marine populations, and endangering our lives and our livelihoods, Who's responsible? Who should pay for the damages? At UCS, we think that big oil should pay its fair share. And according to a 2019 Yale University poll, a majority of the U.S. public agrees. That's why we've compiled our attribution science resources into one location on our website called the Science Hub for Climate Litigation. More on that and the actual lawsuits underway now against fossil fuel companies in two weeks in our final installment of this four-part series. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. 
Special thanks to Dr. Cameron Tracy. Our series on making polluters pay was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, stay safe everyone, and see you next time.